It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I know, I know, I should stop moaning and groaning about my being bamboozled into upgrading my iPhone a few weeks back, but there's still things I can't get used to. Things that tech guys think should be on your phone, but nobody asked me. So every time I go to send an email now, there are two boxes that come up says, hide my email. Well, I don't want to hide my email. I like having my name on my email. What is the bleeping point of sending an email if it's going to be mysteriously disappeared? I guess it's for blind carbon copies, for those of you who know what carbon copy means. Uh, but it just irks me. And I'm sure if you, there's a way to do like 35 steps to get rid of it, but they don't make it easy. The things should come on. There should be a prompt saying, do you want the ability to hide your email? What percentage of people you think would say yes? I don't even care if it's 50%. For the other 50%, we don't want to see that. Now, I don't want to spend much of my rest of my life thinking about Harvey Weinstein, but the woman, Jane Doe number one, who in the L.A. trial was the only witness whose story resulted in a conviction, therefore putting uh, Harvey Weinstein behind bars for the rest of his life because he'd already been serving a 23-year sentence from uh, the conviction in New York, and now this additional sentence, 16 years, uh, on top of it. Anyway, she's speaking out. She's breaking her silence to The Hollywood Reporter. Her name is Evgenia Chernyshova, born in Russia, former model and actress, born in Siberia, to be precise. Um, and there were a number of Jane Doe's at the California trial, but she's the only one uh, whose account led to this conviction. And now she says, I'm tired of hiding. I want my life back. I'm Evgenia. I've been raped. This is my story. And in a tearful interview, um, she describes this violent encounter she had with Weinstein uh, and how by being a Jane Doe, she wasn't able to connect with other victims or be open with her friends and acquaintances about what she was going through. Quote, I did it because I was ashamed and humiliated. I thought it was a good decision to protect my kids, but it was a horrible decision for myself because I've been cut off from everyone. It isn't right to go through this hell alone. The story uh, that she told at trial is occurred during Oscars week 2013, you know, Harvey Weinstein, you know, knocks on her door as she's taking her makeup off, her hotel door, and he says, hey, it's Harvey Weinstein, open the door, we have to talk, I'm not going to F you, I just have to talk to you, and of course, she lets him in, thinking she's not in any danger, and he literally, physically, according to her account, which was believed by the jury, violently rapes her, not going to go into the gory details, but I think it's good that she's speaking out, you can kind of tell from the tone of the interview that she has wanted to come out of hiding, but was afraid. Uh, Bill Maher on CNN the other day was asked by Jake Tapper, were you despondent when Trump was elected? And Maher says, I was afraid for my own well-being. I mean, he said this seriously. I thought I could wind up in Guantanamo Bay. I still think I could. He was ranting about me all last week again. He's obsessed sometimes. And then Maher said that Trump 
if he gets a second term, wants to become an authoritarian leader. Quote, you have, you have to worry when you see what other authoritarian rulers do in other countries to people. I'm not thinking he's going to become Putin and start pushing people out windows, but I'm not going to live on the 30th floor anywhere either. Uh, Kellyanne Conway met with prosecutors yesterday from the Manhattan DA's office. This, you know, it's hard to keep track. All the uh, attention in the last week, week and a half has been about the Georgia special grand jury and the four-person who's running around giggling and enjoying her um, 15 seconds of fame. But this is the Manhattan DA investigation involving Stormy Daniels. I still have a hard time believing that if all the investigations that Donald Trump has been through, that he would end up getting nailed on Stormy. But the reason that Kellyanne was presumably dragged into this is that You'll recall the basics here is $130,000 in hush money paid by Michael Cohen, you know, Trump's lawyer, Trump's fixer, turned fierce critic, written books, makes the TV rounds to denounce Donald. And Cohen has said that Kellyanne played a small but notable role in the payment. She was the person Michael Cohen alerted after making the payment. This is also from his book. I called Trump to confirm that the transaction was completed and the documentation all in place, but he didn't take my call. Obviously a very bad sign in hindsight. But Kellyanne called and said she'd pass along the good news. Um, This piece goes on to, piece in the New York Times goes on to say that it can be a crime in New York to falsify business records, talking about how you might have to show that Donald Trump was aware of the shell game used to free up this money to pay the hush money in exchange for the porn actress's silence. But for it to be a felony, it has to be to commit a second crime, like a violation of New York election law. So those are some of the things that are happening. And now, story number one. Now, even though this story begins with the words Donald Trump, it's about more than Donald Trump. It's about the future of Medicare and Social Security. And you might you know, that sounds a little wonky. Maybe you're getting bored already. But trust me, it's worth the ride. Because it involves a split in the Republican Party, a deep split. It involves the future of these two giant entitlement programs and whether they're going to be there, if not for you, maybe for your kids. And it involves, you know, demagoguery on all sides and including the media, which loves to I would say, help Democrats use Social Security and Medicare as a scare tactic because everybody knows, everybody, everybody knows that these programs are going broke. And if there's not some sort of bipartisan deal, it's not going to be this year, it's not going to be next year, but at some point they'll come up against the, the wall and they'll say, okay, we got to raise the retirement age, or okay, we got to trim the benefits, or okay, we got to do this, that, or the other thing. So this piece in Politico says Trump's use of those two programs is driving a wedge through the GOP. And I always remember interviewing him, I think it was the first time I interviewed him uh, for Fox in the campaign that he won in 2015. And I pressed him on Social Security and Medicare, and he says, nah, not going to touch it. Um, People paid in for it, they think it's theirs, and it's it's going to be protected. And that was a break with the sort of austere 
Paul Ryan uh, approach, which is, you know, it's something like 70% of the budget. You don't trim entitlements. You can't get control of spending. Trump didn't really care about getting control of spending. He was never a small government guy, as you can tell from raising the debt ceiling three times, which, of course, now Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to do without uh, accompanying spending cuts. Anyway, to get back to this political piece, he's attacking his primary opponents or potential primary opponents to stay away from these two programs. Lawmakers who once backed entitlement overhauls are now openly at odds with colleagues who would prefer to soften their positions before facing the voters in 2024. And the upcoming election is not only going to be a referendum on Trump, assuming he gets the nomination, and a whole bunch of recent polls show him well out in front. But remember, there's not a national poll in the primaries. There's Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And a challenger can build momentum and raise more money by doing well in early contests. Um, so Ron DeSantis, Trump has separated the party into two distinct camps as he attacks Ron DeSantis as a wheelchair over the cliff kind of guy for supporting a congressional budget that alters Medicare. And this wheelchair, you know, push granny off the cliff thing goes back decades to when Newt Gingrich was just trying to slow the growth of Medicare and Social Security. Some GOP members are angry to see their party divided over this. And there's a lot of on-the-record quotes in this. People aren't afraid to talk about it, unlike other things. Uh, Chuck Grassley, who's been a senator for a zillion years, says this got him, Trump, elected the first time, and I think it will get him elected the second time. But it doesn't do anything for our children and grandchildren that aren't going to have a program that I'm enjoying right now. Others say the GOP has changed for the better in the last 10 years, finally accepting that voters aren't as divided as elected officials about whether to touch these programs. Here's Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri. I distinctly remember somebody basically ran a presidential campaign on this in 2012, the Paul Ryan austerity budget. Of course, he was a VP nominee. I don't recall that ticket performing very well. I personally don't care to go back to that. So they're saying out loud, on the one hand, you got somebody like Grassley saying, we got to do something. On the other hand, you got somebody like Hawley saying, it's suicide to do something. It, these are popular programs, and let's not mess with them for now. Um, Trump's tactics have some Republicans clamming up or endorsing more modest ideas aimed at ensuring the programs don't go bankrupt. They're supposed to go be insolvent in about a decade, so they don't have forever to deal with. So, for example... You could um, target fraud and waste, impose work requirements, raise the eligibility age, which I think is likely. People work uh, to a later age these days than they did when, you know, this New Deal era program was passed. Um, and there are Republicans who are pointing to bipartisan legislation, Mitt Romney, Joe Manchin, that would create rescue committees aimed at negotiating these changes. Because basically you got to give both parties cover. If everybody comes together and says, okay, this is painful, but we got to do this, then nobody particularly takes the heat. Oh, here's uh, Mike Rounds, Republican senator from South Dakota, calling Trump's uh, attack on DeSantis. So I guess one time in, in the past uh, had is on record as have supporting some combination of benefit cuts or other changes that don't make older Americans happy. Uh, he said that was very unfortunate 
background saying, we need an adult as president who's going to take on the tough challenges, the tough problems. Be prepared to share with the American people how serious it is and not use scare tactics. But Trump is already beating up on Nikki Haley for comments she made 10 years ago about even considering entitlement cuts in order to slow the growth of government. And then there is DeSantis, who, when he was a congressman, um, voted on three non-binding budgets that call for gradually raising uh, Medicare's eligibility age. By the way, Mike Pence also saying that changes, cuts, whatever, to Social Security and Medicare need to be on the table in the long run, meaning we're not going to change it tomorrow for people who are expecting to get the paycheck or are already getting the paycheck. So this, I think, is... I wouldn't even call it a sleeper issue, but depending on who wins the nomination, uh, here's a uh, Trump advisor anonymously saying, it goes to the broader picture about this isn't just Trump against the Democrats. It's Trump against the establishment. This is a defining moment, defining policy moment for a lot of Republicans. Uh, Senator J.D. Vance, the newly elected lawmaker from Ohio, said talking about entitlement cuts is politically stupid. So you get the point. Uh, It's a problem. Everyone knows it's a problem. Everyone in the media knows it's a problem. Something's going to have to be done at some point. But right now, somebody wants to win, a Republican who wants to win the nomination in 2024 has a choice. You either go along with the Trumpian view that these programs can't be touched, or you do what Pence is doing, uh, and perhaps others, and saying, this is insanity, we got to slow the growth of government, and these programs have to be touched, but it should be done in a bipartisan way, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Number two, um, CPAC, the annual conservative conference, uh, gets underway today here in the Washington area, actually uh a highly renovated and chic place in Maryland called National Harbor. Uh, expected to be a love fest for Trump. All right. I didn't set out to do so many Trump stories, but I will pause here and say there's a Biden story coming up behind this. So love fest for Trump, says Politico. Um, but it also raises the stakes for him. A poor showing in the crowd or the CPAC straw poll could feed chatter that his grip on the GOP is failing. Uh, Dave Carney, Republican strategist. Obviously, he has a lot on the line with this or in anything he does right now. Everyone's looking for cracks. When you're the front runner, every event you go to becomes important. Now, let me just say, I don't think CPAC is as important as it used to be. A number of high-profile Republicans are not attending this year for various reasons. But more than that, for years the CPAC straw poll, and it's mostly sort of dominated or has been in the past by young libertarians, and often the winner of the CPAC straw poll would be Ron Paul, who didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of being elected to national office. And these other big names would be embarrassed because Ron Paul won, Rand's father. 
Then Trump kind of changed the party. Uh, by the way, it cost $375 a ticket if you're going to go to this thing. Um, so Trump's hoping to lock up the straw poll. But I, I see, I think it's no win. If he wins the straw poll, people say, yeah, well, of course he should win the straw poll. He's the former president of the United States. If he loses the straw poll or if somebody comes really close, let's say somebody who happens to be the governor of Florida, well, that's probably not going to happen because Ron DeSantis is not going to CPAC. He's one of those high-profile potential candidates who was skipping it. It doesn't mean people can't vote for him, but usually you have your little gang uh, going around, I wouldn't say whipping votes, but trying to organize supporters of yours or people who might be supporters of yours not just to carry signs, because there's a lot of silly signs and masks and so forth, this thing, um, but to um, participate, participate in the straw poll. So CPAC was once the ground zero for grassroots Republican activists, as P says, would attract a broad spectrum of conservative leaders. But during the Trump years, it effectively morphed into an arm of the MAGA movement, fully reflective of the populist America first wing of the party. Well, no matter what happens, and I guess that poll will take place over the weekend. Donald Trump's scheduled to speak on Saturday night, which is considered the prime slot. No matter what happens, there should be a lot of press coverage because it may kind of be the only game in town, even though there's no formal role here. But, you know, I remember when Mitt Romney went to CPAC and was under suspicion because he was seen as the formerly too moderate governor of Massachusetts. And he went and says, I am severely conservative. And I thought, mate, you're trying a little too hard. He won the nomination anyway, but he obviously did not, uh, was not able to knock off President Obama. Number three, Mark Leibovich in The Atlantic. He is longtime political reporter and astute observer of the Washington scene. And he's looking at the 2024 landscape on the Democratic side. I told you. Um, and he's got this piece, and Leibovich likes to be provocative. He doesn't convince me of this. I'm not sure what his ultimate point is. But he dives into the debate over Joe Biden and his age and says the public silence around the president's predicament, meaning most Dems really like him, think he's done a good job, but do not want him to run again, uh, has become a tiresome and potentially catastrophic situation for the Democratic Party. Somebody should make a refreshing nuisance of themselves and involve the voters in this decision. So he's openly calling for a primary challenge to Joe Biden, the only other person who's in right now is Marianne Williamson, who I think we can all say is very entertaining, but not a serious candidate. Yes, this would be a radical move and would anger a bunch of Democrats inside the various power terraria of D.C., starting with the biggest one of all at 1600 Pennsylvania. There would be immediate blowback from donors, the DNC, but do it anyway, preferably before Biden makes his final decision, while there's an opening. If approached deftly, the gambit could benefit the president, the party, and even the challenger's own standing, win or lose. So it's the part where it benefits the president where Mark loses me. But let me go on and give you a little more of his argument. So he says, look, there has to be one good challenger X out there from the party's supposed deep bench, right? 
Actually, the party doesn't have a deep bench. That's the problem. Uh, somebody who's compelling, formidable, younger than, say, 65. Someone who would be unfailingly gracious to Biden and reverential of his career, even while trying to end it. Uh, before we start tossing out names, let's have a big to be sure. To be sure. Primaries can be very bad for presidents seeking re-election. And that's the first thing that popped in my mind. When Pat Buchanan challenged George H.W. Bush in 1992, and I remember him holding up that headline from the New Hampshire uh, union leader after that primary, um, Bush was sufficiently damaged that he lost to Bill Clinton in the general election. That weird three-way election that also included Ross Perot. We also had the case back in 1980 of Jimmy Carter when Ted Kennedy challenged him from the left, um, got off to a slow start, but then won some primaries in big liberal states. And, you know, Carter lost for a lot of reasons. Um, But the challenge from Ted Kennedy did not help. And I'll have more to say uh, toward the end of the podcast about Jimmy Carter. So they held on, they lost. Why should Biden not just be coronated by his party? done a good job in the eyes of the people who voted for him. His party overperformed in the midterms. This is all true. He's, uh, he's had a feisty State of the Union. He made a muscular visit to Ukraine. Um, the difference is a special predicament that begins with an eight. You all know why that number is being tossed out here. Nobody wants to be accused of messing around with established practices when the alternative, very possibly Donald Trump, um, is so terrifying. I guess that's the Democratic point of view, or maybe it's Leibovich's point of view. But just as Trump has intimidated so many Republicans into submission, he has also paralyzed Democrats into extreme risk aversion. This has fostered an unhealthy capitulation to mis- musty assumptions. And if you believe groupthink can't be hardly wrong, I've got some weapons of mass destruction to show you in Iraq, not to mention a black man who will never be elected president, and for that matter, a reality TV star who won't either. In other words, this could happen. Candidate X, who Leibovitz says can't be from working in the Biden administration now. It would just be seen as too disloyal. But then he throws out a whole bunch of names, and you know, you've been through this exercise before. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Cory Booker, New Jersey, a whole bunch of governors and senators. Chris Murphy, Connecticut, Amy Klobuchar, Minnesota, who ran last time. Tim Ryan, former Ohio congressman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, California Governor Gavin Newsom, Maryland Governor Wes Moore. I think Wes Moore is an impressive figure. He's been governor of Maryland for about 15 minutes. Uh, And here's an interesting part. Challenger X would almost certainly receive tons of press coverage, probably good coverage too, given that the media are predisposed to favor mavericky candidates who inject unforeseen conflict into the process. When the voting starts, maybe this upstart would overperform, grabbing 35% or so in the early states, say. Maybe she wouldn't surpass Biden, but could still reap the good coverage, gracefully drop out, and gain an immediate advantage for 2028. Oh my God, we're talking about 2028 now? Or maybe Biden would take the hint, step away on his own, and let Democrats get on with picking their next class of national leaders. So the part I'm not getting is that this would help Biden. 
win or lose. Now, if you believe that Biden is too old to run again, and that candidate X, or could have the XX chromosome or the XY chromosome, um, little genetic humor there, uh, that candidate X could knock off Biden or at least come close enough that he withdraws, as happened with LBJ in 1968 at the height of the Vietnam War, then it makes sense. If you're saying Biden would benefit from this, I, I don't see how, because it's not like he vanquished some tremendous, powerful, influential, charismatic leader of the Democratic Party. There aren't that many of them. He just rules out Kamala Harris, by the way. He just doesn't even go there. Um, and so instead, I think Biden would look weak, even if he easily won. The, and, you know, as an incumbent president, it's not an easy thing to do to knock off somebody who's already flying around on Air Force One and lives in the White House and at the Delaware Beach House and so forth. So I don't see how it helps Joe Biden at all if this scenario were to unfold. I also think unless he changes his mind, he's probably going to announce in April. Jill says he's, you know, any minute now, how many times does he have to tell you? And I think people who might like to run will be sufficiently intimidated by all of the heat they would take from their fellow Democrats. What are you doing? We finally have the White House and the one guy who can beat Donald Trump. Um, but, you know, a lot of these people look in the mirror and see a president, so maybe somebody will try it. But right now, they're, they're all wargaming it out privately, but not in terms of taking active steps to challenge the president of their own party. Uh, as long as we're talking about the Dems and people who have run for president, one of them is Pete Buttigieg. And he, according to the Washington Post, is getting an unusual uh, number and degree of personal attacks, uh, which were ignited by, of course, the toxic train wreck in East Palestine, Ohio. And look, he botched it. He should have gone there sooner. He admits he should have gone there sooner. He admits he should have spoken out sooner. Even though when you get into the details, the transportation department is important in terms of studying why this train derailed with its uh, toxic load that has created something of an environmental disaster. But at the same time, the lead uh, people were our EPA and NTSB and, you know, but, but still, you know, I, I say this probably more than I should, but politics is about optics. It's why Joe Biden went to Kiev. It's why Pete Buttigieg relatedly went to East Palestine, but ended up following Donald Trump by a day. So uh, this piece is kind of uh, sort of a defense uh, of Buttigieg in the Washington Post. It says that uh, Buttigieg is actually responding directly to some of his critics. He's faced GOP criticism before, the supply chain disruptions. And then, of course, the failure of the federal aviation safety system in January, not to mention the Southwest Airlines fiasco uh, a couple of weeks before that. But people close to the transportation secretary say the attacks on him since the derailment have risen to a new level. Uh, though part of the broader GOP criticism of the administration's response to the derailment, the attacks on Buttigieg have been strikingly personal. Rubio tweeting that Buttigieg is an incompetent who is focused solely on his fantasies about his political future and needs to be fired. Mitch McConnell saying on the floor, 
Buttigieg is more interested in pursuing press coverage for woke initiatives and climate nonsense than in attending to the basic elements of his day job. This is unusually personal for a guy who's just the transportation secretary. On the other hand, he is the most visible member of Biden's cabinet. That's why he gets on the Sunday shows. That's why uh, he's just a hell of a lot more uh, out there. And he also is good at TV. It helped him in his campaign. He ultimately lost that presidential race because he couldn't attract very many black votes. Um, And so here's Jeffrey Shane, who worked at the Transportation Department under George W. Bush, said because his last act was running for president, Secretary Buttigieg is an unusually high-profile person to have the DOT job. And that uh, is giving him a hard time. Donald Trump Jr. said recently that Buttigieg got his job solely because Democrats want to give a role to the gay guy. Now I think we're getting a little closer to what this may be about. Because... Before the derailment, some Republicans were mocking Buttigieg's decision to take paternity leave after his twins were born and to bring his husband, Chastin, with him on a military jet. So now it's getting really personal. In fact, the White House put out a statement for the story. Whether it's sickening attacks on his family or disrespecting a community's pain with failed attempts at exploitation as a political prop, nothing saps credibility like following the debunked smears with even more debunked smears. Then it turns out that um, Rudy Giuliani is criticizing Rudy Judge. Doesn't Rudy have other things to worry about? Um, so in terms of pu- pushing back, Judge says, he writes back to Rubio and says, the facts don't lie. The 2020 letter you signed was obviously drafted by railroad industry lobbyists, talking about against more regulation. It supports waivers that would reduce visual track inspections. And after McConnell went after him, he said, uh, Mayor Pete said, respectfully, the Brent Spence Bridge we're funding in Kentucky is hardly a woke initiative. Fighting climate change isn't nonsense. And one last note here. I mean, it may well be that Pete's not going to be able to run for president, but he did move from Indiana, where he had been a small-town mayor, to Michigan, where there's a Senate opening coming up. I don't think that was by accident. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number four, Lori Lightfoot, as I mentioned yesterday, losing her job as a Chicago mayor, badly, getting just 17% of the vote. And what does she do? She plays the race card. Why did you lose? I am a black woman, let's not forget. Certain folks, frankly, don't support us in leadership roles. Now, let me just go off on this because she talks about race a lot. And she talked about it in terms of the press and so on. Since she is a black woman and the first black woman to win that job in Chicago history, doesn't that show that people were willing to look beyond race and elect her? That she had to attract enough white votes with you know, natural support in the black community to become the mayor of Chicago, having never run for elected office before. So four years later, with crime a major issue and people feeling unhappy with what's going on in Chicago and maybe not liking her personally, now it's racism. So when you win, that's okay. There's no race issue. You've overcome. It's a great thing. And when you lose, oh, I lost because I'm a black woman. I just think that is 
not gracious, um, reaching for race as a scapegoat, and frankly, beneath her. I mean, she's lucky. She got to be mayor of Chicago for four years. She should be grateful for that. And she could run again if she feels, you know, she hasn't been treated well. But she had two other opponents with crime again, rising crime in Chicago, a major issue. And they made the runoff, and she didn't. So perhaps she ought to look inward and not just talk about skin color. Now for number five. With Jimmy Carter at home receiving hospice care and obviously having made a decision not to go back to the hospital and to pass his final days at home with his longtime wife, I mean longtime, like he met her when she was born and he was three, Rosalind Carter, former first lady. The Wall Street Journal has a book excerpt um, that I find really striking. And I remember this well because I was a teenager and or a little bit older than a teenager, but early 20s. And Carter says, or is quoted in this documentary, the Allman brothers helped put me in the White House by raising money when I didn't have any. Greg Allman at the time was emerging as a national celebrity. Why? Because in 1975, he married Cher. And there's an anecdote related in here that um, Carter had gone or had staged a benefit concert or fundraising concert with Bob Dylan. He invited the Allman brothers, who were from Georgia. So they obviously knew him as the former governor of Georgia. Greg Allman shows up like 90 minutes late. Already the lights have been turned off. Everything, all the equipment's broken down. And he saw Carter... Uh, wearing a pair of Levi's and a T-shirt, barefoot, with a baseball cap on his head. The governor greeted him and said, come on in, I got some new Elmore James albums we can listen to. And Carter praised Allman's songwriting and started rattling off the lyrics to his songs. The governor was an educated, appreciative fan. And if he was consciously wooing the rock star, he was doing a good job of it. Uh, Allman recalled that they had a drink together, The government, and the governor said, by the way, I'm running for president. Seemed absurd to Allman that the guy sipping scotch and listening to blues might become president of the United States, but he really liked Carter, admiring his gumption and just folks' appeal. And as a former young person, I remember the fact that the Allman brothers went on to back him, the fact that he even liked the Allman brothers, made Carter seem cool. Um, Probably more like to people in my age bracket, I also was a fan of the Allman brothers. And it's hard to describe because presidents... JFK being a notable exception, were not cool. When I think of Richard Nixon, I think of him walking on the beach with B.B. Rebozo in a suit and dress shoes. But Carter was hanging out with the Allman Brothers. So the band's biggest boost to Jimmy was a benefit concert in November of 75 up in Providence. Geraldo Rivera was the MC. That's a long time ago. Introducing the candidate as an honest, open, progressive politician. There were a few boos. Carter said, I just have four things to tell you. My name is Jimmy Carter. I run for president. I need your help. I'm going to win. And now, some very good friends of mine from Macon, Georgia, the Allman Brothers. Hamilton Jordan, who was a top campaign strategist and later became a White House, I don't remember if it was chief of staff or deputy chief of staff, um, said that was critical because nobody knew who Carter was and it kept us going financially. 
Then um, Greg Ullman had to testify at a trial of a friend who was convicted of drug dealing. He became a little bit radioactive. It kind of didn't go with Carter's straight-laced, born-again Christian image. Um, but Carter wouldn't distance himself. He said, I'm proud of my relationship with the Olin Brothers Band. They are good people. They are my friends. And anybody who wants a president who doesn't like music like this and who doesn't like people who make music like this should just simply vote for another man. And so Carter called uh, Greg Ullman when his son with Cher, Elijah Blue, uh, was born in 76. This was two days before the Democratic Convention. And um, it's clearly quite a tale. And then finally, when Ullman received an honorary degree from a Macon University, Carter was there to present it. And on June 3rd, 2017, the former president returned to Macon to attend his friend's funeral. That about wraps it up. Um, I just like that excerpt because it shows the human side. And, you know, some of these long-shot candidates, and Carter has to be the most long-shot candidate to win the presidency in about a zillion years. You know, nobody believes they really have a shot except themselves. Most of the time they don't, but every once in a while somebody breaks through. Thanks for spending this time with me. Going a little long here because I'm just passionate about this stuff. Hope you'll subscribe. Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, two good places to do it. You get it without the ads. And tomorrow, I will see you with more BuzzBeater. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.